From the home of creative writing on the Internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. Time in Colombo, Sri Lanka is 1.30am, where writer and scientist Arthur C. Clarke will be buried today. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Chicago, Illinois, where at the luxurious Four Seasons Hotel, two concierges lie metaphorically bound and gagged. And at the most memorable dress in computing, number one, Infinite Loop, Cupertino, California. The time is one o'clock in the afternoon. So, good evening, good afternoon, and good morning. Wherever you are, I'd like to welcome you to Litopia After Dark. As always, we're broadcasting live on Ustream. Join us there if you can, and don't hold back in the chat room. Tonight, we're looking at moral turpitude. No, not that again, yes. Asking where books go to when they die. And looking at why writers use Macs when the man behind them is such an asshole. All this plus an unfailing formula for writing your next international non-fiction blockbuster on tonight's Litopia After Dark. Our panel tonight is very old school. I'm pleased to welcome back from Indianapolis and America's Midwest writer and historian Beverly Gray, from England's West Country writer and lecturer Dave Bartram, from Fort Lauderdale in Florida writer and lawyer Donna Ballman, from London, UK writer and Latoka's answer to Sebastian Horsley, Richard Howes, and from the Highlands of Scotland writer and Latoka podcast officer Eve Harvey. He was author of more than 70 books, nominated for a Nobel Prize, and was most famous for his short story, The Sentinel, which was expanded into the novel that was later adapted for Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, A Space Odyssey. He was more than just a science fiction author, of course, but that was certainly his main focus for much of his life. Writing in the New York Times this week, Edward Rothstein says, and he starts by quoting Arthur C. Clarke himself, absolutely no religious rites of any kind relating to any religious faith should be associated with my funeral. Were the instructions left by Arthur C. Clarke, who died on Wednesday at the age of 90. This may not have surprised anyone who knew that this science fiction writer, fabulous fantasist and deep-sea diver, had long seen religion as a symptom of humanity's infancy, something to be outgrown and overcome. But his fervour is still jarring, because when it comes to the scriptural texts of modern science fiction and the astonishing generation of prophetic innovators who were his contemporaries, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury, Mr Clarke's writings were the most biblical, the most prepared to amplify reason with mystical conviction, the most religious and the largest sense of religion speculating about beginnings and endings and how we get from one to the other. So, I'd like to know, how important really is science fiction writing today? Beverly. Oh, I've always enjoyed science fiction very much. From the, the old John Carter on Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs to, to Arthur C. Clarke and, and Robert Heinlein, other worlds, other places, and I don't think that will change. Do you think, Richard, do you think science fiction writing generally is just a geeky thing, or does it have any real literary and social value? Uh, I, I think it's split into two, uh, two factions. You, you've got your uh, Peter F. Hamilton's with the Night Storm trilogy, you've got your Julian May with the uh, Pileocene Exile, 
and Tad Williams with the other. And, and, and their, their series of sci-fi books are, are all telling great stories, but they're, they're also dealing with universal themes. Um, they're, they're making grand references to previous cultural works, and, and they're really kind of developing theories and, and philosophies that really kind of expand perhaps knowledge or, or understanding of the reader, whereas there, there is also the, the substandard romps and there are the kind of niche market Star Trek, Star Wars, the Games Workshop books that they don't really have any depth and and, and that they really don't serve any purpose but the romp. Um, but I, I, I do believe that, that science fiction does still serve a great purpose, but whether it still matches up to the likes of Ray Bradbury, um, uh, who's Fahrenheit 451, there's an amazing bit of work. Uh, I haven't read any Arthur C. Clarke myself, but I'm, I'm guaranteed to get on to, to do that because I have found recently that the, uh, the older books, um, they've said it all before, so why not start there? Dave, um, has any science fiction really ever made an impression on you as, as a reader? Yeah, um, various ones, really. Probably ones that leap to mind the most are... Um, the Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin, uh, which is a remarkable uh, bit of riffing on uh, capitalism versus uh, pure socialism. And then you have people like Joe Haldeman's Forever War, which is a remarkable uh, expose of the mindset of the returning soldier. You know, just it's set into a, a science fiction context to make it more accessible and get people to read about this stuff who otherwise probably wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. So I think that's where its value is, isn't it? It gets people to look at issues they wouldn't otherwise look at if they were just told straight. Donald, is, is this um, a genre whose time has come and gone? It was very sort of 1950s, wasn't it? I mean, do you think it still can tell us anything at all valid about the future of, um, of our race? Well, I think that sci-fi is important so we can kind of imagine our better selves. We place humanity in otherworldly situations and it tells us how we can relate to our own world in a different way. Um, plus, I think to some extent, it's up to writers to imagine things for scientists to invent. Uh, how, how much sci-fi has inspired real inventions? Well, isn't that the, the problem now? That, that, I mean, science is so far verging towards science fiction, especially if you look at sort of elementary particle physics or the things that are being done genetically. I mean, it's very hard now, isn't it, to, to, to sort of go beyond those the boundaries of reality. Do you think that we've stopped being able to imagine new stuff? I certainly hope not. It's just going to be bigger and better or maybe more horrible stuff, but there will always be new stuff to imagine. Yeah. Eve, um, impressed by SF at all? Um, not, no, I don't read sci-fi, I have to say. I, I watch the films, the Star Wars and Blade Runner, and I love the star, the sci-fi movies, but I have to admit to have never having read a sci-fi book Hmm. I'm just skimming this sci-fi list of the top 100 sci-fi books and I've not read a single one of them, none of them. So it's, 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 it's a geeky boy thing then, yeah? <laughs> no, no, well, no, no, not necessarily. I like, <laughs> I like the films, I mean, I love the films, but um, no, I have never read a sci-fi book at all. Well, in, in the uh, chat room, um, Carol Astor and uh, Nick P have raised uh, a, a couple of authors who... Uh, write literary fiction um, you know as kind of sci-fi uh, pretending it isn't for example Jeanette Winterson Margaret Atwood and uh, Kazuo Ishiguro um, so you know it, it is 
broader than just the sci-fi genre, isn't it? There's all types. There's sci-fi mysteries, any kind of genre you like. You can have a sci-fi version of it, and um, it's so varied. I don't, I don't see how somebody can just say I don't like sci-fi. I can see I don't never read sci-fi. That's that's an honest uh, thing to say. But uh, to say that I don't like sci-fi, my gosh, there's so much of it. Yeah, don't you think two of the most meaningful books? of the 20th century were science fiction books, 1984 and Brave New World. You know, remarkable, you know, indictments of modernism and uh, totalitarianism in, in the most powerful form you could imagine. I do think a lot of sci-fi has really changed the world. Uh, even, um, certainly those books are, are very influential, but even Star Trek, look at, at Star Trek's view of how the world um, is going to be in the future. And I think that's been very influential on us and hopefully maybe will influence us when we do have contact with uh, aliens that I believe are out there somewhere. So science fiction really is literature then. That's the general consensus, I suppose. Um, Also this week, a former German World War II fighter pilot has confessed he shot down French literary hero Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, author of the children's classic The Little Prince, which is one of the top-selling 50 children's books of all time. 63 years after the event, a famous aviator Saint-Exupéry took off on the 31st of July 1944 from an airbase on Corsica and was never seen again. This week, Luftwaffe pilot Horst Rippert revealed that he shot him down. If I had known, he said, it was Saint-Exupéry, I would never have shot him down. And he, uh, he said, I didn't target a man who I knew. I shot at an enemy plane that went down. That's all, he told the authors of a new book. Um, he was below me. I saw his markings and manoeuvred myself behind him and shot him down, said Mr. Ribbert, who brought down 28 planes during the war and became a radio sports journalist also. Um, is The Little Prince really the classic it's cracked up to be, do we think? Um, Beverly? It's one I never got into. Um, I, I just... I, I can appreciate its quality, but it, it just wasn't one I, I really liked that much. So for me, it's not as as much of a classic as, say, the Narnia books or the Wizard of Oz, but uh, certainly it's a, a beautifully crafted story. Dave, which children's author would you shoot down and why? Oh, children's author. Um, <laughs> you can put them in, there's no one in your, in your sights directly. Well, and attack not, them from the sun, from the sun, remember? Uh, yeah, absolutely, yes, yes. Uh, 12 o'clock high and all that. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't think of a children's author offhand, um, but I have to be careful of the lady who worked, wrote The Worst Witch because she lives just up the road. She might come and get me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think... Probably Jacqueline Smith could do with the strafing now and again. I think we possibly. gave her a pretty good strafing, actually, recently. Yeah, Jacqueline yeah. Wilson, isn't it, or Smith? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think authors generally, if we get out of the children's, I think if there were three planes with um, David Eddings, uh, what's his name, Jordan, and uh, uh, Raymond good. E. Feist in them, I'd have trouble choosing which one to shoot down first. I'm run out of bullets there, wouldn't you, really? Eve, Absolutely. Little, Little Prince classic, or, or what do you think? I haven't ever read that one either. Oh, I'm sounding terrible tonight, haven't I? I've read hundreds too busy of books, writing books to, to read, the, read these things, obviously. Um, I liked I, it I, when I was in junior high school. I, I remember liking um, the, the phrase, you become responsible forever for what you have tamed. And mm. I, I thought there were some really good tidbits in it. It was, um, I, I think, a, a, a really good story. And, and targets, anybody? Anyone you'd like to shoot anyone down? Hopefully, I would shoot down Christopher Paolini, um, who wrote Aragon. Um, yeah. I don't rate his writing, and I don't believe that a 15-year-old should uh, 
be a published writer, really, let alone be successful at it. I mean, yeah. at least J.K. Rowling had the hardship and the pain before she got, got published, but, you know, yeah. what, what kind of hardship is he ever going to have? He, he might get that later in life, mightn't he, of course, you know, <laughs> sort of a, a, a young one-book one wonder, perhaps, one-series wonder. Maybe when he marries Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> I'd shoot down every hackneyed celebrity author who's taking publishing contracts away from real children's writers. Absolutely. Yeah. You and me both, don't there I? We'll get them together. <laughs> They're on my list. Yeah, good thinking. Um, yep. Now, sales of Encyclopedia Britannica's 32 volume set peaked in the year 1990, but in the next six years, they dropped 60% hit by Microsoft's Encarta, but mainly, of course, by Wikipedia. And today, sales are down to just 10%. Encyclopedia publishers all over the world are trying to figure out how to save their businesses. It's safe to say many won't. Much reference publishing has been killed by the net. Encyclopedias are clearly on the endangered species list. And the president of um, Encyclopedia Britannica, Inc., um, is counting, apparently, on nostalgic allure to keep at least some encyclopedias on, on bookshelves, not just hard drives. He envisions the print volumes living on as a niche luxury item with high-quality paper and glossy photographs, similar to the way some audio files still swear by vinyl LPs and turntables. And he says, quote, What you need people to understand, he says, is that it is a luxury experience. You want to be able to produce a lot of joy, a paper joy. So... Is this the end of the encyclopedia? And if it is, does it really matter? Yeah, I remember having a set of encyclopedias in the house when I was a kid, and they were a source of endless uh, fascination and interest. You know, you try and f- you just read through them to find out stuff you didn't know. I think I have, I do use a, a paper-based encyclopedia now and again. It tends to be uh, at work when I'm on the hoof and aren't immediately by a PC or whatever. I think the problem with Wikipedia and other sources is you feel slightly less certain about the uh, veracity of some of the information you get, whereas if it's on the printed page, it feels a bit more um, definite. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think there's there's a place for such things. I think they are a luxury experience. They're a browsing experience. You can sit and just browse knowledge in a rather kind of... Uh, yeah gentle and, and relaxed sort of way well, we, we know a little bit we know a little bit about the the browsing habits of um, another of our panelists then we eve and uh, her uh, sort of morbid attachment to, to thesserai um eve do you feel the same about encyclopedias or is this prying into areas we shouldn't no uh, no i i i don't think i think they're going the wrong way actually i think they should move it online um I like to be able to go in. I don't trust Wikipedia a lot because it, it's made up by other people. You know, anybody can go in and, and alter things. Um, I think maybe instead, I, I don't see it as a luxury item. I see it as, a, you know, something you want to go and find the information that you're looking for. I think if they take it online and make it, you know, I mean, you always think of Encyclopedia Britannica as being the, the foremost, you know, you would trust everything out of it. If they took it online, you could go in, you know, pay a fee or whatever and search for exactly what you want. Um, I would, I, I, trawling through pages and pages of creamy paper. No, it's not one of my, hmm. I'll stick with my thesaurus. Thank See, you. I would, have, I would bet otherwise I'd have got that completely wrong. Um, Richard, Richard, isn't it a concept of an encyclopedia, sort of a, a, a book or anything really that contain, that can, can contain the sum total of human knowledge? Isn't that really an outdated concept in any case? Do you I, I believe it is. I, I use Wikipedia pretty much every day, whether it's for catching up on the 
things I've missed out on lost or whether it's uh, if I'm looking up on the anatomy of a bird because I'm, I'm writing about it in one of my stories. Mm. Um, and you trust it, do you? Uh, yeah. You trust it as much as, the, as an encyclopedia? Well, perhaps not, but I, I just don't ask too many questions and then it's not going to tell me any lies. Right. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's got a, a certain truthy quality to it. Yeah. In in the, the library, we, we have just purchased uh, access to the Britannica Online, um, the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, Heenemann World Book Online. Uh, we got access to all sorts of things like the Times Digital Archive and InfoTrack. And, um, you know, you, I, I don't believe that you, you need access to the encyclopedia wow. as a physical thing anymore. Well, no one's really been sp- speaking up for the print version. Beverly, I mean, you know, you're a historian, you're a, a stickler for historical accuracy and fact and so on. I mean, do, do you think paper encyclopedias offer anything that you can't now get on, on the net? Uh, I, good or ill, at a very early age, I had teachers tell me, don't use the encyclopedia for research papers. They're not in-depth enough. <laughs> use it as a jumping-off point and then follow to tighter, more detailed sources. Um, I always loved the encyclopedia when I was little. You know, I could sit for hours. They made wonderful forts. Yeah. You know, when you <laughs> build did. forts with them. I, I, I mean, did that Poetry too. books on top of them made a really good crenellated wall. But yeah. <laughs> I, I, I always enjoyed the pictorial encyclopedias, the ones that, you know, had the full color pictures and everything. So I, I could see where it would become a luxury item yeah. for pure research i don't think you can beat the internet now i mean i can find things in five minutes what used to take me two days in a library and that that's just the linking from one one thing to another you know you find this fact which leads you to something else which leads you to something else um just for research it just saves so much time doing it online i can't find anybody to speak up in favor of the print version donna you're my last hope here i mean i'm rather rather attached to them sort of sentimental attachment to these things actually Uh, i I find them completely useless now um (laughs) it's so much easier and quicker to go online and and get information um you can do it quickly it's more updated um, and I, I like. Yeah, you can't browse online, can you? Well, sure, I can. I, oh, I, I you browse online all the time. I, I can jump from link to link and be. Very- That's hyperlinking. That's not browsing. In browsing means you can pick something up, you flick through it, you just stop somewhere at random, and it, it, and it, it attracts your attention, and you get into a. That's what I loved as a area. child, and that's exactly yeah. what I used to do when I was a little girl. Was just open them up and see what page opened, Peter. So that's why I say, as a luxury item, it's it's wonderful. The last thing I need in my house is more books. For heaven's sakes, I, I've got the books that I love. What do I need? Uh, and well, we're like- going to get to that in a, in a minute, actually, about what, what to do with old books. But just coming back to this, I mean, it, it, browsing is important. Browsing is, is a way we get knowledge, isn't it? And you can't, you can't get that off, off the internet. I think the problem with the internet is this, this kind of leaping from thing to thing. I was just running through the Wikipedia, I just grab something at random, and you do, you're just attracted to the bright blue word of the of the hyperlink, and you go to something else, and before mm. you know it, you're way off what you might have been vaguely interested in. And I, I remember as, as a teenager going into the, the reference library of my local town, 
and it was fantastic. It was like the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was a huge place, and you could literally lose yourself in the shelves, and there was every bit of knowledge you could possibly imagine. And browsing the internet has nothing to compare with wandering this cavernous building full of books that people had spent time to put together and sourced and checked and verified, and you had a sense of veracity and certainty when you picked a book up off the shelf and checked it and read it and knew that it was probably so and i, I just think it, it, it was kind of a bit romantic but it was it was it was a great place to be and it was more fun than the internet that's for sure well now it's probably outdated as soon as you pick it up well absolutely yeah but, I mean, that's what they say isn't it but actually i mean how, how much information is really going to get outdated it's only leading edge stuff isn't it? everything it gets outdated eventually uh, his, even history you you get new versions of what really happened as more people come forward as more people study it's all outdated well, it, it is when you've got Bush and Blair constantly rewriting history all the time to make themselves look better. <laughs> well, what does your encyclopedia say the planets are? That's outdated. Well, it's also opinions, isn't it? You know, it's only a bunch of scientists got together and decided something was this and decided something was that. I mean, whether Pluto's a planet or a proto-planet or a pseudo-planet or, in fact, uh, you know, a, a cloaking device for a Romulan spaceship. Uh, I don't know. It, does, it, does it matter that much? It's not going to affect me that much at the end of the day. I just The idea of, of going into a huge place and you pick out a book and you open a page and you randomly find something out that you didn't know before is kind of cool. I like that. Mm, I do. Um, Carastra says in the chat room, Britannica used to release one book each year updating science and technology. That was good. Yeah, moving on. According to J.B. Priestley, Arthur C. Clarke was the happiest writer he had ever known. Um, and a slew of books just published this week tackle the subject of happiness. The studies show apparently that most people say they are 7 out of 10 happy, where uh, 0 is totally miserable and 10 is absolutely ecstatic. And most people on average say they're about 7 out of 10. And yet, the burgeoning success of self-help get-happy books suggests quite another picture. Eric Wilson's new book, Against Happiness, complains that people pursue happiness as a vocation, a birthright, or both. They're deluded, he says, unrealistic, inauthentic. They fail to acknowledge the misery in the world and live in an in emotionally gated communities. Better to be, quote, born to the blues, as he is, he declares, and experience the world in all its dimensions. And writing in the New York Times this week, actually reviewing um, Eric Wilson's book, is Garrison Keeler, who says of Mr. Wilson, the author is a gloomy man who tried jogging, yoga, tai chi, Frank Capra movies, smiling, good grooming and eating salads, and finally decided to embrace his gloominess. This makes him an odd duck in America, a land of, quote, crazed and com compulsive hopefulness, settled by seekers of utopia, a promised land that quickly became a shopping mall, where the typical American, the American bent on discovering happiness through securing stuff, consumes Paxil and Prozac, Ambien and Botox, while seeking the instant gratification of the cell phone, the Blackberry, the internet, smiley faces, churches that are, quote, happiness companies, hugging and yearning for up with no down. So, should we expect to be happy all the time as a right? Well, it's, it's in our Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Jefferson put it in there. I think what people tend to forget is it's not happiness but it's the pursuit of happiness uh -huh. it's the it, you know it, that's the goal it's the actual pursuit no one expects 
well, unless they're very young or very deluded, I don't think anyone realistically expects to be ecstatically happy all the time. But we have the right to pursue it, uh, to, to try the challenge of finding ways to make life pleasanter, easier, happier. Um, on the little scale, I'm probably about a five, so I'm not sure I'm the best person to talk about this. <laughs> well, now, Dave says that happiness is overrated. Do you agree with him, uh, Donna? Well, I think that's nonsense. I'm pretty happy, and uh, maybe maybe it's just an American mindset, but um, I don't see the point on, on dwelling on the negative, and I don't think that um, it makes me a better writer to be unhappy. In fact, I find that I have my most trouble writing when I'm unhappy and I, I write the most when I'm, I'm happy. Um, I think it's a mindset um, that, that you can learn. And I, I think that if you pursue happiness, I think it's a big mistake. I don't mm-hmm. think you can really pursue happiness, but I think you can teach yourself how to have a better attitude, which makes you happy. So Dave, uh, Donna thinks you're talking nonsense. Yeah, uh, well, as fair go, I probably am. But I, I do think that what we mean by happiness is not happiness as, as, as it truly means. Happiness is a state of euphoric delight, isn't it? Um, what we actually mean by happiness and the pursuit of happiness is the absence of unhappiness, um, you know, a kind of a level, you know, balanced state. That's what most people are striving for, really. To be happy all the time would be laughing your socks off all the time, um, grinning all over your face all the time. Uh, being in a certain, a fixed state all the time, given the nature of being a human being, being in one state all the time, would be profoundly unhealthy and dangerous. You, you haven't um, met me in the flesh, have you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm worrying that... Cream, and that's maybe just described. I, I'm worrying if I might have met you in any in other form. Do you do astral projection at all? <laughs> no, I, I just think, you know, what actually... What people really mean is the absence of unhappiness, the absence of pain, the absence of discomfort. Happiness is is a peak in in a kind of in a in a graph, isn't it? And hopefully we all try for a fairly level kind of not unhappy, not euphoric, somewhere in the middle, and then we get these kinds of ups and downs. So I think it, it's a matter of definition more than anything else. I, I I think that you rarely learn anything if you're happy all the time. Um, you you don't grow as a person. Um, you, you don't get to learn how to deal with certain situations. I, I think that can only be done um, if you are faced with situations or incidents that that don't make you happy. Um, you know, the sad times, they they teach you how to deal with emotions and and, and the such like. And I think that um, people who, who uh, grow up in, in particular being made happy constantly by their parents uh, end up becoming conceited and, conceited and selfish, and uh, I think it, it makes us better people to not be happy. Hi, I'm happy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There's no wrong with me, and I'm happy. I was born with a happy gene. <laughs> you conceited, selfish. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm listening yeah, I, to all of that and thinking, well, I'm all right. And I am. I'm happy. I was born with a happy gene. Nothing really phases me very much. And I just bounce back anyway. So. Well, how do you define happiness, Eve? 
just being content with everything. N- not, um, I'm not euphoric. I'd be a strange person to live with if I was, but, but I just deal with everything and have a breezy, outgoing personality and just get on with everything. Mm-hmm. I, I don't uh, I don't dwell on stuff. If things are awful, then I just deal with it. Do something about it. If I can do something about it, if I can't, forget it and move well, on. Well, that's, that's, that's you and your, your personality. But as far as writers are concerned, yeah. um, Mr. Wilson, this is what Mr. Wilson writes. And he says, he says, the greatest tragedy is to live without tragedy. To hug happiness is to hate life. To love peace is to loathe the self. The blues are clues to the sublime. The embrace of gloom stokes the heart. So, do you think a happy writer can produce anything other than drivel? There's a, a difference <laughs> between being happy and having nothing bad ever happen to you. I think they're two different things. I mean, I've had a lot of bad things happen to me this year. That doesn't mean that I'm an unhappy person. Uh, it, it's the way I've dealt with the unhappy things that happen to me. Um, and I can certainly channel in my writing the way I felt when those really horrible things happened, but it doesn't mean that I, I have to stay in a fetal position and cry to be a good writer. What with one arm outstretched tapping on the keyboard. Oh, God, it's so awful. Tick, 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 tick. <laughs> well, and I find writers who tend to you know, kind of focus on the doom and gloom. I tend to not read those writers. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I don't like people to depress me. I do fine on my own. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, as to happiness, unhappiness, mellow, stressed, that I think comes down to basic personality traits. And some writers are going to be, you know, the Hemingways who can't write unless they're looking through a bottle. Some writers, you know, they need to be sitting in a cheerful, bright room or, say, a nice little cafe where, where there's just sort of happy chatter going on around them. Others kind of need to go into a cave to write it. And you have as many different types as you do different writers. What works for somebody wouldn't work for me. You know, his, you know, this melancholy thread... I can't write at all if I'm in that condition. Hmm. So I, I think uh, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to feel or believe. It, it's just hmm. how each of us is. Nick, Nick P in the chat room says, "Mind you, saddos don't always write much of any note either." But don't you think we're we're confusing unhappiness with with kind of wallowing? Because hmm. they're not quite the same thing. You can be melancholic, you can be unhappy without wallowing in your own uh, uh, whatever it might be, and you can. Sometimes a slightly less uh, euphoric take on life gives you a deeper insight and a deeper understanding. I mean, in, in Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, bless him, um, said that there was that great little um, monologue from Sam about how it's the dark, difficult stories where you don't know how it's going to turn out all right that are the important ones to read and the important ones to pass on. You don't want to read the ones that are all happy all the way through. You want to find out about the dark, difficult ones because yeah. those are the ones that tell us things. Yeah. I hate unhappy endings. I, oh, I don't like being around people who are depressing, and I don't like reading books that are depressing. No, but it's not about being depressing, is it? You know, it's, it is about exploring the psyche and the range. And uh, sad isn't necessarily unhappy, or downbeat isn't necessarily depressing. Per- you know, perhaps th- that's the key. Perhaps that's the key where. 
you know, it's just like some movies that you, you'll see a movie that that's very dark indeed, and yet there's something very special that comes out of it. Well, think of the uh, think of Harry Potter. Think of the seventh book. That got incredibly sad and dark in places, and yet there was that core of good will win out and and that may be the difference um, i have no problem with difficult journeys for my heroes or you know tragic things happening but if, if i'm made to feel that the author is is just whining about it that comes through and i you know i'm not interested in reading whiny books but if it's more of a darkness sadness and yet there's a reason for it. There's a structure to it. There, there's something that touches you so that, yeah, that's a tough thing to go through, but the reward at the end, it's worth doing. It's worth the courage. It's worth the sacrifice. Um, dark, gloomy books for the sake of being dark and gloomy because, oh, look at me. I can be, you know, grim and, and dark. No. That that's just as bad as the effervescent. I'm so happy and adorable. Don't you adore me? <laughs> Either extreme is not much fun to read, and they're rather narcissistic. Um, Richard has, has said something in the chat room. I can't actually pronounce. How do you pronounce Which it? Richard? <laughs> <laughs> the last bit. <laughs> A long, long way to run. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. It's going to burst into song. Please, anything but that. Um, Talking talking of moral turpitude, U.S. immigration officials this week denied British author Sebastian Hawley entrance to the United States on the grounds of of moral turpitude. I've actually uh, I've met Sebastian Horsley, uh, and he, <laughs> I can tell you, he, he is actually a sick puppy. He definitely is. But uh, I, I don't know if it really justifies banning. I'm not a politician. I'm an artist, Mr. Horsley said. Depravity is part of the job description. And um, in the Daily Mirror in the UK, it explains a little bit more behind this. It says, I don't think the Daily Mirror actually knows much about Sebastian Horsley, actually. Um, it says, tired from his return trip to London and eight hours of detention with the US customs officials, the 45-year-old artist and author of the lyric autobiography of drug addiction and sex, quote, Dandy in the Underworld, that's the title, admitted that his flamboyant dress and top hat may have caught the attention of US officials. I was wearing my dandy uniform, but the customs officials were wearing uniforms too, and I didn't object to them he said. Horsley was stopped by immigration officials at New York's Newark airport after flying in from London to promote his book, which the author calls a moral book. Uh, They said I was suffering from moral turpitude, Horsley said. I was very surprised. I'm feeling quite well. I've never drunk turpentine in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Horsley claims to have slept with more than 1,000 prostitutes, worked as a male escort, been in and out of rehab to uh, to treat drug addiction, and staged a self-crucifixion in the Philippines in 2000. And um, I can add one or two. I'm not going to, actually, but I could add one or two other things to that list. Um, The... um, the U.S. Um, um, immigration people said travellers who have been convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude um, are not admissible. So what do we think to this in this day and age, uh, Richard? Well, uh, we, we wouldn't let Snoop Dogg in, so I guess they're just True. turning the favour, aren't they? 
<laughs> yep. No, yep. they 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 do let Snoop fly uh, around their own country, and of course they like let the people such as uh, Fiddy Pence fly around as well. And you know, I don't consider them to be uh, bastions of moral code. Um, but rules are rules. Um, it's interesting that that they must have some kind of list where they're they're putting uh, people like Horsley uh, on it. Yeah, th- th- there must be a moral... It's like the no-fly list, except it's the moral turpitudinous list, I, I would imagine. <laughs> people, people whose morals fall slightly you know, lower than the, the mark. I mean, Beverly, how, how, as, as, as an American, like, you, I'm going to put you on the spot. How can you justify this this extraordinary sort of uh, 19th century moralism? I don't know. Every now and then our Puritan roots just crop out. I, it happens in some of the oddest places. I, I, I can't begin to comment because on the one hand you have utter fascination with you know the celebrity ins and outs of rehab and stuff and then have this incident so it's again it just kind of goes back to our roots and every now and then it crops out i can understand if he had a criminal conviction um that part of the exclusion i understand but excluding him for something he wrote seems a little extreme Uh, it's interesting because he actually was quoted as saying it's better to be quotable than honest so i get the feeling that he's going to be another one of these fraudulent uh biographies eventually but um in that case he may as well just have said uh that everything was fiction and it'd be easier for him to travel here um i don't know The, the that exclusion doesn't make sense to me. Dave, would you want to be admitted by a country who would admit you in any case? <laughs> <That's just good. laughs> it's like people who want to stand for parliament are excluded for, by suitability for their, by their very wish to want Absolutely. to stand for parliament, aren't they? Yeah, I um, know. Yeah, probably what people who would tolerate me probably aren't people I want to so- associate with, really. Um, <laughs> they have very low standards for a start. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I just I just love the kind of hypocrisy of all of these kinds of stances, isn't it? You know, of course, America is completely blemish free in terms of class A drug use and, oh, yes. and drinking and prostitution, <laughs> oh, and yes. and this guy would his arrival would obviously upset the utopian apple cart that is the USA, yeah. and 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 just spread like a disease across the whole continent and and turn everybody into a vice-loving psycho. So, um, you know, I mean, it's interesting that the American people embrace another guy who had himself crucified, um, but won't embrace him. It's curious. Where where did he try to enter? New York. I mean, which city did he try? Was it New York? He was New York, yeah. Oh, well, considering what they're just going through with their two governors, that's even... Exactly, yeah. And we did dip into that last week. In fact, I haven't fully extricated myself yet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Have you Uh, read his blog? Oh no! Hey, I didn't Sebastian know he's got one. Has he? Forsley's blog. Has it's he got absolutely. One? Oh, March the first, two thousand and eight. All pets are flushable. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! I can just see the donkey now halfway oh, down the road. It's, it's brilliant! It's absolutely brilliant! It's really, really funny. It's yeah, well I, worth a read. Actually, I had one of the weirdest evenings of my life actually in his, uh, his poetry society. <laughs> Don't let reading it; otherwise, they'll, they'll ban you. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it, it, oh right, okay. Catching. I've never it's looked catching. at it. <laughs> so um, the overwhelming majority of writers and creative people generally seem to use Macintoshes all my writing was done on a Mac years ago but when I became an agent I switched to PCs uh, a profile of Steve Jobs um, and Apple 
uh, appears in Wired magazine uh, this month, and it shows Jobs and his business to be at least as tyrannical, paranoid, and downright nasty as anything Bill Gates could ever do. Uh, just to quote a little bit from it, it says, uh, At most companies, the red-faced, tyrannical boss is an outdated archetype, a caricature uh, from the life of Dagwood, not at Apple. Whereas the rest of the tech industry may motivate employees with carrots, Jobs is known as an inveterate stick man. Even the most favoured employee could find themselves on the receiving end of a tirade. Insiders have a term for it, the hero shithead roller coaster. Um, while Apple's tactics may seem like industrial revolution relics, uh, the uh, author of the piece says they've helped the company position itself ahead of its competitors and at the forefront of the technical industry. Sometimes evil works. Uh, Steve proves that it's okay to be an asshole, says Guy Kawasaki, Apple's former chief evangelist. Uh, at times, the piece goes on, Apple's secrecy approaches paranoia. Talking to outsiders is forbidden. Employees are warned against telling their families what they are working on. So, with... Um, an operation like that, and indeed a man like that, the big question is, why do writers use Macs? Um, let me take a guess. Richard, do you use a Mac? No. Oh, no, I don't. I, I don't buy into any big company at all. Um, I, I try to stay clear of anything that has a label. For example, the uh, iPod or the iPhone. Right. Uh, or Tesco's, um, <laughs> particularly with with them, uh, you know, making people serve themselves. I mean, am I going to get charged any less money for that? No. Anyway, uh, back onto Mac. Um, no, I, I I think it's a pretentious thing. Uh, my my wife's whole family seem to have Apple Macs, and they all swear by them. And I've got a friend who, though he doesn't have a Mac, consistently swears by Macs. Um, but then he does that with LPs as well. Oh, LPs, you know, they produce the best sound. But does he have any? No, he doesn't. He's just talking rubbish. The, the Macs are, are more expensive as well, aren't they? You know, so well, they always uh, used to be, the, yes. Yeah, the, the authors tend to start out writing on a PC. They get their, uh, their first big windfall of cash. And they go, oh, well, I can buy a real computer now. <laughs> exactly. I can buy myself an Apple Mac. Exactly. And then, you know, I'll be a real writer then. Yeah. So I don't know what any computer um, our, our panelists use now. So I'm going to make another stab in the dark. Eve, are you a secret yes. Mac user? Mac user? I'm not. Oh, I'm a again. Sony Vio user. Uh, <laughs> so what does your computer say about Sorry. you? As, what does your computer say about you as a personality then? Uh, it breaks down all the time. Hideously expensive. Um, <laughs> and and a passion I still, for chocolate. <laughs> I still go out and get another one. So uh, I don't know, but they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. So right. that's obviously what it is. Yeah. I'm so attracted it, to them, their beauty. <laughs> so does it help with your writing process, having a beautiful machine purring oh, away there in the background? absolutely. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh-huh. I have to. I, I can't get past them. I got a new one just a couple of weeks ago and I couldn't, I couldn't even, my husband's throwing these brochures for these other ones that are mm. a quarter of the price at me and, and I couldn't get past this beautiful little Sony Vio. So and and they break and I know they break. Why are you kind of stroking it all the time though, and sort of patting it instead of instead of actually doing some writing? I have a special (laughs) little cloth that I use. (laughs) (laughs) So how many words do you get done a day, Eve? Uh, not enough. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm for computers. My children both have computers. I'm just, I love computers. It's hmm. my thing. 
Yes. Donna, Donna, PC or Mac? PC or Mac? Well, I'm going to rat Dave out because I know he still uses a Mac. I, I'm a former oh. Mac user. I, oh, me. Yeah. I stubbornly stuck with Mac for 17 years out of my 21 years of law practice and finally gave up when I realized that no legal programs were compatible. And whenever I changed uh, anything on my website, I actually had to email the the person um, at headquarters rather than just going. They had a program where I could go change it myself. So it was very clunky. Um, I thought I'd be miserable changing over, and I've really been quite happy. Yeah, well, I, I will admit to be the, 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 the satanic Mac user. Oh. In the, um, <laughs> you must be a real writer. Uh, I am. Well, I like to think so. Um, no, it's interesting because, I mean, the, the notion that Macs are more expensive is, is actually rubbish now. You can buy a machine that is does the job of a two grand PC for about seven hundred quid these days, um, which is quite shocking. But there you go. Mm. Um, uh, the interface is just cleaner, and when you're writing, you want a clean, crisp interface that isn't cluttered with crap, like uh, you know XP is, and you don't have all these constant bloody reminders oh. to do this and do Vista. that and do Vista. the other. Vista. Yeah. I don't know. If it, I, I took one look at Vista and just ran away screaming. Yeah. I mean, at work, when I do really boring things, I use a PC, and at home, when I write, I use a Mac, and it's it's it looks nicer. It's kind. Of, there is a snobbery thing, you know. You you, you have a Mac, mm-hmm. and it kind of says, "Hey, I'm not doing a spreadsheet for an accountancy firm here. I'm doing something interesting." Um, <laughs> And it's just a crisper, cleaner interface. OS ten Leopard is great. You know, you have these wonderful stacks, and you can clear your desktop, and you can get to exactly what you want when you want. The, the How many times do you get the bomb? Faster. The bomb. How many? The bomb. You know, the the dead Mac bomb. I used to get that all the time. Uh, never had it actually. I had really? a display pack up on a seventeen inch PowerBook, but it was works, and so that doesn't matter. Um, and have never had it. Yeah, it's actually got a lot sleep. better. The operating system is quite is quite different now, Donna. It's it's, it's been uh, totally rewritten based on um, Unix. Beverly, PC, Mac. Well, I, I haven't used a Mac since I had one catch fire on me. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> Hope you sued them. No, I was working one day on a document. Beverly, let me introduce you to Donna. Started she having smoke coming out of it. Um, I was a uh, I was a computer gamer for many years, and mm. very few of the uh, game. Yeah. Producers supported the Mac, so I've always had a PC. I like them. I, I'm getting used to Vista. It, it's still a little clunky, but it, it's. I I I started to scream too, Dave. But then I thought, no, I'll I'll stifle the scream and hang in there. And it it's it's okay once you get used to it. Between the bomb and the little empty Mac with the question mark in it, uh, I I got that. Well, way the too bomb much. and the smoke was fun. That that. Oh, yeah. And of well, course, I, I was an electronics smoke. firm, so, you know, first rule of thumb is, hmm, piece of equipment smoking, so you unplug it. So that that took care of that. But, of course, the computer was pretty well fried. But yeah, it's never a good sign, I feel, when that happens. And, and then you leave it for it to cool down, and you turn it back on again with some of those feature <laughs> lengths. Right, it does, you know, if you've got a glass of water on the desk, you just pour it over to them, and it will just, um, it'll, it'll calm it down. <laughs> 
Um, a British uh, charity shop called Oxfam got a boost this week when a cast-off donated book it received was sold at auction for $30,000. So, I would like to ask everybody how they deal with the problem of unwanted books um, and how they'd feel if one of their cast-off books was subsequently sold for a ton of money. <laughs> yeah, um, I deal with the problem of unwanted books by just stacking them in a room we don't use and trying to pretend they don't exist anymore. <laughs> and do they exist? <laughs> They do, actually. Funny how I look at them, they're still there. It's, it's most distressing. Um, like one of those I basic philosophical a... questions, isn't it, really? Is a room full of unwanted yeah. books exist or not? Yeah, well, it, it doesn't exist when I don't look at it, yeah. which is fine. You know, you know, reality is all subjective, so yeah. if I confine my reality to not looking in that room, then it doesn't exist, so that's everything's fine in the garden and everybody's happy. Um yeah, but in reality, no. Getting rid of a book is is a tough thing. You kind of throw them into the into the bin, and they stick to your hand, and then something weird happens in <laughs> a reflex, and you put them back on the pile. It's very odd. Yeah. So well, I don't that, deal with that, that at where, all. Um, basically, that's where Hitler was misunderstood. What you know, with all his nobody's reading them. They're cluttering. He was just trying to help yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And the salute thing was trying to throw books away that he couldn't get shot of, wasn't it? He just couldn't get... He was just kept doing it because he couldn't get rid of the book. No. Clear off. I don't need any more. Eve, is this a problem for you? <laughs> no, I never... I've never got rid of a book in my life. Never can't. Really. Can't do it. Won't do it. No. You live in a book house. Sacrilege. Yeah, but you, yes. download your, uh-huh. you download all yours illegally from the internet, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I actually steal library books. I steal library books. I keep yes. them as well. Don't even throw them away. No. <laughs> she can't bear to part with them. <laughs> no. I, I, I give them to my mum. <laughs> even now, there are six no, guys no, room no. by six outside the window <laughs> with, a, with a listening device <laughs> going... <laughs> There she goes again. Yes. No, I, I keep them all. I can't throw out a book. That's just no. Against the against my nature. Can't possibly. Anyway, nobody wants second hand books, do they? Well no, we've already discussed that last week and, and we we know why as well. If you want to know why, dear listener, you'll have to listen to the last episode. But be warned. Um Beverly, what's your what's your what's your policy on this? Um, well, I used to donate them to school libraries, but now school libraries don't seem to want them. Fortunately, here in Indianapolis, we have a wonderful uh, bookstore that's um, called Half Price Books, and they give you just a fraction of what the books are called, you know, worth. But uh, the nice thing is they get put back on shelves, and other people can buy them, and so they they get recycled that way. Ones I really love, I keep. What the heck is an unwanted book? I I don't think I've ever found one. Um, I think the only oh. books I ever disposed of were um, some kids' board books that they'd outgrown and probably chewed on, and then um, my books from law school. Those were indeed unwanted books. Mm. Um, but other than that, I think I have every book I've ever owned. My mom, in fact, brought me a bunch that I had when I was a kid to to give to my kids, and um, they. St- uh, still use them, and um, I guess what I do is um, uh, send them up to to our house in North Carolina when I'm really done with them, and then we can 
put them on the bookshelves up there. Well, talking about unwanted books, a gossipy book by two ex-concierges at Chicago's luxurious Four Seasons Hotel has been pulled by Three Rivers Press because the authors were legally banned from writing about their experiences. And now the public will no longer be able to discover that Madonna had a phobia-like aversion to air conditioning and Sir Anthony Hopkins asked that he simply be called Tony. Hmm. So is it right that confidentiality agreements can be used like this to to prevent us from knowing essential information like this? Um, Back to you, Donna. If there's something legitimate to protect, in this case, customer privacy, then yeah, I think confidentiality provisions are legitimate. I think too often they're used for um, purposes of employers basically stealing legitimate stuff from their um, employees. Um, what's really worse are the agreements where companies claim ownership of all the intellectual property that employees create while they're employed um, or about the workplace. I see those all the time and, and people think I'm being facetious when I, I say to them when I'm looking at these agreements, well, have you written or do you plan to write the great American novel mm. or um, anything relating to your workplace? Because if you do, you're giving it up. And your employer's going to claim ownership of it. Jeez. Awful. That's that's really swinging, isn't it? I mean, that's actually quite a serious point. Yeah. It's more for computer programmers and and people like that. But there's a lot of people out there, techie folks that have nothing to do with programming games in their real lives that uh, are working on game programs and other things that their employers are going to snatch away from them. That's quite interesting because I have a contract that says um, my employer has a right to any kind of... Uh, forms and uh, processes that I develop, but any intellectual rights to anything I originate as a research paper or whatever are my own. It's, it's that's an interesting point. Hmm. Richard, you have been gagged. I mean, you know, in this way. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been. Um, no, I can just the standard not to do anything that that reflects badly on my employer. But but you know, gagging all is about. About whatnot, I don't know. I'm, I'm quite interested in, in writing about um, the inner workings of, of the Twisted Council. I'm sure that would come off uh, very nicely, because certainly there's a, there's a lot of wasted money and a lot of hmm. mixed up red tapes. That, but no, uh, work, working for a local council, they, they don't generally have that kind of thing, because it's uh, it's a public service, isn't it? Yeah, and there was, there was a case quite well, not right, just a few years ago, wasn't there, in, in the UK, um, that, that was a, a bit of, set a bit of a precedent showing that local councils cannot sue for libel. Because they, they, cause they tried that, didn't they? Did you remember that? Yeah. Um, gosh. Well, the latest publishing trend, um, which everyone, of course, wants to know about, and if, you're, if you've listened, if you've survived to, to this point in, in the podcast, then this is your, the icing on the cake, the, the cherry on your uh, chocolate pudding. The latest publishing trend is my year of fill in the gap. Writing The Guardian this week, Stuart Jeffries says, Think of something you could do in a year, and then tell an agent. Trust me, they will drool. It doesn't matter how dull the thing is. I've just secured a six-figure two-book deal with uh, my year of slightly changing my bicycle route to work, and its sequel, my year of reverting to the original route. The important thing is that whatever you do, it should take precisely 365 days. And he goes on to suggest some titles... um, some of which I think might be serious. My year as Prince Harry's double in Helmand province. Um, my year as Lindsay Lohan's Lickspittle. 
Maya on crack in Riyadh. Uh, there have been memoirs of unlikely projects before. Tony Hawk's Round Island. These are, these are real ones. Tony Hawk's Round Island with a fridge. Neil Borman's Bonfire of the Brands. How I Learned to Live Without Labels. And Are You Dave Gorman? In which Dave Gorman went round the world trying to find other Dave Gormans. But the new trend is to write up a year's worth of experience. Here are some. Self-Made Man, My Year Disguised as a Man by Nora Vincent. These are all real ones. Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life by Barbara Kingsolver. Every Friday Night, My Year of Dating Misadventures by Rita McLaughlin. The Year of Reading Proust, My Year Inside Radical Islam. Give It Up, My Year of Learning to Live Better with Less. A Year Without Made in China by Sarah Bongiorni and Life Stripped Bear. My Year Trying to Live Ethically by Guardian writer Leo Hickman. Uh, the latest, he says, is My Year of Living Biblically. One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible by New York-based journalist Al Jacobs, which is now being developed into a movie. <clears throat> Jacobs doesn't know what he'll write next. How about my year of living off big-ass royalty checks? Um, it seems a bit frantic and a bit dire, doesn't it? Are we scraping the creative barrel here? Any any suggestions for my year of, of, of whatever? What do you think, Oh, Billy? I think it's like everything else. It's probably going to run its course, and anyone who gets the bright idea now is probably behind the curve and can't tap into that one i'll have to wait for yeah, the next one that's possibly true actually yeah eve my your year of reading thessarion or what that's exactly <laughs> my title damn yeah. it <laughs> i got her first by a split second <laughs> loads of words in that one yeah, plenty words never run out of them what would i get for that um, from me, nothing, actually. But from who knows, you know, from a, a, a publisher. Um, Donna, what would your year be? Well, my year off is already taken. Um, and my year of endlessly revising the same children's novel, um, I think, would be dull. Um, <laughs> um, if I were to be serious, I'd say that the best idea I could come up with is um, a year of great advice to employees. It would have to be like a calendar, and every day would be a different piece of advice. What? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It depends on the advice. That could be uh, handy. It could be like a Dilbert calendar. It could be really good. <laughs> um, I can't resist that one. Uh, Richard? Uh, my year of communicating like a cat. Meow. Feed me. Meow. Actually, was it they have uh, identified like 300 different sounds cats can make, so you would just need 65 things to go with the 300 sounds. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I think that really could do very well. <laughs> I better get on and do it then. Yeah. Well, well, think about it though, you know, because the different breeds have different meows. I mean, you, you yeah. could do a, so a comparison the of the Siamese and the basic domestic cat. They have very different vocal <laughs> tones. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got the first 20 chapters, <laughs> Somebody's scratching my tummy. Sorry. Oh, it's me. <laughs> Dave, can yeah, you help us out? Look from my oh, save me from cat hell, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, funny. The odd thing is, I, I tried to write a book a while ago called A Year and a Bit in Seychelles, because that's what we did. And um, uh, it was great, actually, because uh, we got this fantastic advice from this old guy who'd been in Malaysia just after the war. And he'd, he'd say things to my wife like, uh, Don't let the natives bang the hell out of your dresses on the rocks. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, this is like 1990 I don't think the natives are going to be 
knocking on the door to kind of <laughs> launder the silk dresses, you know, for the for the socials and so on. And it was, and I, I'm sure it, there's a market for this kind of stuff somewhere. But I don't know, a year of something. I did look at that year of living biblically uh, in in Waterstones the other day, and oh. it looks like it should be hilarious, and it's actually remarkably dull. Yes, I was I was impressed by the dullness that that somebody had drawn out of something like that which could have been actually well, I mean, quite it could be amazing actually couldn't it? i mean you know enormous amounts of bloodshed of course um incest i mean you name it really it's all in the bible so exactly and all he was talking about was kosher food <laughs> uh, <laughs> what a and I thought, you know didn't yeah, stone anyone no no well i didn't see anything like that it was it was all about you know gefilte fish it clearly so wasn't forth. without sin no <laughs> yes yeah it was uh, it was a shame it could have been fun <laughs> Did he say whose Bible? <laughs> That's a good point. King James, you know. <laughs> I think living by a year of living by the watchtower could be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hell. You're or going to hell. A, a year of hell. living by Awake magazine. I don't know. <laughs> a year of knocking on doors and being told to go away. <laughs> a year of living. A year of doing everything that Oprah recommends. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> There you go, Donna. <laughs> a year of trying to be on the um, what was his, what's that guy's name on this Jeremy Kyle show? That would be good. How about a, a year of trying to get into America? Even <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian Horsley. Good. Well, I think we're just about um, thunk out this evening. Um, I want to thank all our panelists. Beverly Gray, Dave Bartram, Donna Borman, Eve Harvey and Richard Howes for being fantastic panellists as always. Very good to get the, the old school collection uh, uh, together again. And I want to wish you very happy holidays as well because we're recording this um, Easter Friday. Uh, we've got three days off here in the UK. Um, hope you have two over the other side of the Atlantic. And whatever you're going to do, have a good time. We'll catch up with you again this time next week. Nighty night, everyone. Nighty night. Yes, bye now. Well, that was the show, and this is the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers' Colony. The main website address is www.litopia.com. And we also have a microsite purely dedicated to our podcasts. The address is podcast.litopia.com. There's no www, just type podcast.litopia.com, and you'll find it. That's also where you'll find show notes and links referenced in this episode, all carefully compiled by our podcast officer for your benefit. How are you currently listening to this podcast? The best way is to subscribe to it using iTunes. iTunes is free software, and it works both on the Mac and the PC. Once you subscribe in this way, every show will be automatically downloaded for you the moment it's available. Full instructions on the Litopia website. And talking of iTunes, if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a good review on our iTunes page. We rely on word of mouth to promote the podcast and really would appreciate your help to tell people about us. On the website, podcast.litopia.com, you'll find a neat little widget that you can easily add to your MySpace page, your blog, or your social network. Just click on the button for full instructions. It's easy to do, it looks cool, and it helps us too. We're constantly working to make the show and the website better and better. One new feature allows you to sign up to have our fulsome show notes delivered automatically to your mailbox, again, as soon as the show is released. 
Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you and we'd be delighted to receive your comments and suggestions. There are several ways to do this. Choose whatever suits you. You can, for example, leave a comment on the show notes page or you can use the handy feedback form again on the website. If you prefer, you can send us an email and if you're feeling very adventurous, you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at litopia.com. Remember, in addition to being available as podcasts, our shows are also streamed live over the internet as they're recorded. This means you can listen in to all our bloopers and you can also make comments or post questions via the special live chat facility. You'll enjoy it. It's great fun. Full details on the website. Finally, if you appreciate what we're doing, then please do consider giving us some mild financial support to cover our web hosting and bandwidth costs. It only takes a moment to click on one of the buttons to make a donation, and it will help us keep going. This is Peter Cox. Thank you for listening, and looking forward to being back with you again soon. Bye.